You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast, cold edition. I don't know where you're at, but where we're at, it got nippy. I think my phone app said three or four degrees yesterday morning, which was, uh, it was brisk. Even for a North Dakotan, it was brisk. Anyway, had a great week, had Michael Brimer lead worship for us. Michael is a longtime friend from here in Kansas City who now lives in Colorado Springs. And man, it was great to, great to have him. Uh, great to be with those who made it out in the cold. And even as many were traveling, felt more like a big, small group, but actually it felt, felt a lot of fun. Here is the message from Sunday, titled, What I Want Them to Say About Us in Five Years. How are y'all? Are you warm enough? My word, my weather app said three at one point. I was like, thumping my finger on the phone thinking it was stuck you know how do you it's like you tap on the glass to fix things it's uh, good to have everybody thanks for making it out I know I know when it's cold and it's in a weird week it's like because we're still in that in that week over the holidays where you don't know what day it is like some people literally are not here because they didn't know it was Sunday they thought it was Tuesday and so it's in that weird season and I appreciate everybody making it out thanks for coming and everybody joining us online. We had a ton of folks that either were traveling or uh, were ill or had been exposed to somebody, and they're like, I better lean back, and we get it. We totally get it. Glad to have you. But it is the first Sunday of 2022, and I think we probably say that with a little bit of uh, trepidation of what might come, don't we? Because we've done this the last two years thinking, okay, here we go, and it didn't quite go like we thought it was going to. And as much as we believe that the best is yet to come, we don't know what we're going to have to walk through to get to it. And we just look forward and we don't know. If you turn the dial back on the Wayback Machine about a year and think a little bit about where we were. A year ago, we were still meeting online. We went from not knowing what Zoom was, right? Remember, is it an app? Do we download it? Can we do it? How does this work? We went from that to now when we wish we could mute people in real life. You know, that was the best part about Zoom. You can just make people go away. You can't do that in real life. We went from uh, not knowing anything about it to kind of becoming pros at it. And if you look at what we might have thought a year ago, looking forward, there were things that we were wrong about. And there were things that we were right about. We were, what if we get wrong? We probably thought that over the next year, hysteria is going to die down, right? Surely a pandemic can't last very long. Surely the political world cannot be in upheaval very long. Surely our friends and neighbors will quit taking their crazy pills. You know, surely things are going to settle down. None of those things happened. None of those things happened. All of those things are still raging. What else did we get wrong? Uh, Probably the strongest opinions on things like vaccines were wrong. Remember a year ago, everyone was in one of two camps, that the vaccine would kill you, or if you took it, you would never get COVID again. It's one of those weird things that people on both sides were both wrong. Here we are a year later. People who took it are alive. People who 
took it, got COVID. You know, we, we were wrong about that. But there were things we were right about. We're wrong about everything. We were right that Jesus would be faithful. We had looked back over the years of our lives, and we looked forward and we said, okay, this may be a dumpster fire, but Jesus will walk in the fire with us. He's going to be faithful. He didn't desert us. In our difficulty over the last two years, he was more faithful than we thought. Jesus always exceeds whatever we expect. You cannot out-hope him. It just doesn't work. It says in Isaiah 40, 31, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. All of the earth looking for a renewable resource of energy. All of the earth looking for something that generates its own strength. He says, if you hope in the Lord, he will renew your strength. You will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And here we are, two years later, we're still walking. We were right about that. We were also right about the fact that friends are valuable, and we actually understand it better now than we did then. The past two, I said this about a year ago. It just dawned on me one day. I have fewer friends than I thought, but I have better friends than I thought. Like the last two years, been a bit of a winnowing effect. But I've discovered that the ones the Lord has put near me are nearer and dearer than I realized. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all time, but a brother, someone you're in close community with, is born for adversity. We have seen adversity and we're figuring out who our brothers and sisters are. Personally, these last two years, I've found myself a little more tender with people than I was before, a little more willing to extend grace. Wouldn't it be just like the plan of Jesus to use adversity to actually make us closer rather than drive us apart? We were right that friends mattered. And we were right that hard times are navigable. We realized we could get through things together. So here we are, realizing how wrong we've been about some things, realizing that we were right about other things, on the edge of the new year, looking out into the future, maybe wincing a little bit. But you know, in past years, in times like this, right at the beginning of the year, it was fresh new beginnings. You felt like you were cresting a mountain and the whole valley played out in front of you and it was beautiful and you could see and you realize it's not like that anymore. It's more like you're on the bow of a ship peering through the fog. And you know it's all out there, but you don't exactly know where or what. If you've been with us more than a few times, I don't need to really defend my... Uh, my uh, teaching of the Bible. I stick really close to Scripture, but this is a little bit of a different week or I'm going to look at things just a little bit differently. We'll use a lot of Scripture, but in this week, right after New Year's, right between Christmas and New Year's, I like to uh, take a week and just kind of step back and reflect a little bit. I used to do this in the form of a message that I would call uh, my biggest mistakes of the year, uh, but those messages got so long and, uh, and then people would like suggest things that I had missed. Like, this could be a series. <laughs> Yes, it could. So we're not doing that this year. We're not doing it this way. But I'm speaking just a little more from my heart here than, than, than directly out of Scripture, although we're going to dive into Scripture a little bit. Uh, but understand, my heart's not here in a vacuum. Okay, this, my heart's where it's at after 30 years of ministry and good seasons and hard seasons and uh, good relationships and difficult situations. And that's kind of where I'm speaking from here. After the turn of the year, for, for some reason, the past couple of years, I have found myself reading the book of Acts. And it's not been very intentional. I wish I could tell you it was intentional. It's just turned out that way, like by divine design. 
And as I'm reading the book of Acts over and over again, I find myself reading it and reading the commentaries, and I'm fascinated by the history and the development of the early church, particularly as a fledgling little congregation. Like, this just draws me in. And I'm keenly aware that we have great advantages reading the book of Acts that the people in the book did not have. Like, an understanding of the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the Gospels weren't even written yet. There were probably times, don't, this is not scripture, but there were probably times during the season when the book of Acts would be, was being lived out that they were going, now, what did Jesus say? How, how did that go? Well, look it up. We can't. We don't have a gospel. No, nobody's written this down yet. And so we have significant advantages even to the people who live through the book of Acts. And it's important to read this book remembering that the church of the New Testament is figuring it out step by step as they go. They don't have a five-year plan. They don't have a master chart somewhere. They don't have a flow chart. They don't have articles of incorporation. They don't have all of these things that we put in order. They don't have any of this. This is like putting IKEA furniture together without the paperwork or the picture. Almost impossible. And you see it early on in the book of Acts that as they're putting it together, they're like, how do we do it? And sometimes it displays itself in kind of a funny way. Acts 1.16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand from the mouth of David concerning Judas, who had become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And Peter is like, you can almost read it and watch him figure it out in real time. Oh, this is what David was talking about in Psalm. One of us would betray and then he would die, and we'd have to go, you know, Judas went and hung himself. We've got we to find somebody to fill in. There was no playbook for this. There were no rules for this. It was repeatedly hearing from the Lord and implementing what he spoke on a day-to-day -day basis. There wasn't a plan of grand design. It wasn't even man-made or man-known. They were never more than a short distance away from the future and not quite sure what was going to happen. But it was God revealed as they went. None of them saw the full plan from the beginning, and at times they didn't even agree on what the plan was supposed to be. We see things in the New Testament that we would cringe at. They needed another apostle? Cast lots. Roll dice. Okay? Short straw becomes the apostle. I don't know how they did it, but it was like random chance. It would have felt very, it would never work today. We read things in their decision-making where they chart off on great endeavors with nothing more than, let's well, seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Seems like what the Lord's doing, let's do it. We even read things about the disciples themselves, what they would refer to as a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And it wasn't even over theology, it was over personnel. They split a missionary trip in disgust with one another because one of them wanted to take John Mark, the other one said, I don't want to take John Mark. All right, well, you go that way and I'll go that This was how the church played out. And in the grand design of God, at the end of the story, it was clearly the plan of the Lord because the gospel spread far more than it would have if they would have stuck together. There are sometimes the plan of God even includes what feels like tension on the ground level because at the 40,000 foot level, he's like, no, this is all going to work out. Just, just, you know, don't say things too ugly about each other and reconcile later. It's going to work. No member of the early church could have graphed this out on paper, made a PowerPoint deck about it, or even provided an accurate copy of the Constitution. Like there was just, it was day to day. And their lack of beginning to end plan does not mean that God was not in it. If anything, it points to a daily reliance on the Lord because if 
he didn't do this whole thing, it wasn't going to happen. Now, Bridge family, as loosey-goosey as all of this has felt to us over the past two years, at some level, it has been by design of the Lord. We have more in familiarity with the early church of the book of Acts than we do with what I jokingly call the religious corporate complex. You're like, what's that? I just made that up. Okay. The religious corporate complex. What, what that is, is the tendency of some to look at hardcore business principles, slap a little Jesus on it, and, ma- and okay, now we have, a, that's the way the church operates. It's not how the church operates. Not to say we can't learn things from the business world, but it's, it's a family and a business don't run the same way. You can build something that way, but it, it's not exactly what the Lord seems to be doing. It's the tendency of the body of Christ to take its cues more from uh, the business world, make a pastor a CEO, make the church a business model, the idea that every leadership book written for the business world could in turn be used to take a church from small to mega church. And the funny thing is sometimes it works. And maybe it's the Lord, but it's not the only way it happens. And it's often not how the kingdom works. I don't know what you're looking for. I would say that nobody comes to the bridge looking for the McChurch on the corner, okay? We, we, not us. I think you're probably looking for family in the fog. You're probably looking for a place to belong. Now, we need plans, and we are constrained by business realities, and we have, we'll need budgets, and that's all. That's just a matter of how we do life. However, when we look in the Bible, we see the early church developing with a much closer attention to what is the Lord saying than what the powerful people of the day would have said would have been the wise thing to do. So here we are, week one of 2022, and even though I deeply feel uh, everything that I've told you, that that I'm speaking so well, that I'm hearing from the Lord, I, I feel some master plan or some pressure to lay out a master plan. I just do. I, you know, people come and say, well, tell me about your church. Uh, well, and, and I tell them a little bit what the Lord's doing, but it's, it's an area of weakness for me, just being honest. But also, I, I want to stay really in close contact with what is he saying to us in the moment. And as I was praying about how to face my fear of this and the reality that there, there needs to be some planning, there needs to be some structure in place, uh, he asked me a question. And that wasn't an audible voice, but I just sensed the Lord asked me a question. says, answer this question. This is a start. And this was the question. Randy, what do you hope people are saying about the bridge in five years? Five years down the road, what do you hope people are saying about it? I have people all the time ask me, Randy, what do you, where do you see the bridge in five years? But honestly, I think this is a more interesting and revealing question. What do we hope people are saying? Because I actually have some experience in thinking that things are going one way and they're actually going another. And so I really want to know what people are thinking and feeling. Now, the ultimate commentary on the bridge, on whether it's a success or whether it pleases the Lord, really is written by the Lord. We, we do this to please the Lord. But the secondary voice, the second most important voice, is probably not one of ours. The second most important voice is probably those on the periphery looking in, saying, this is what I think and this is what I see being manifest there. What we think might be the least important measure of effectiveness. Because have you ever thought something was awesome and later found out everybody thought it was terrible? 
That happens. So we, we tune our voice, tune our ear to the voice of the Lord. Lord, what are you saying? And then we say, okay, this is what we hope people on the outside are looking in and seeing in us. Number one, three things real quick. I hope people say, no one has been kinder to me than those people. No one has been kinder to me. Like, Randy, really? You got three things and one of them is kindness? Yes. Because I believe kindness unlocks hearts in a way that facts cannot. Kindness unlocks hearts in the way facts cannot. It would, it would be my hope that five years down the road, really five minutes down the road, but five years down the road, this idea of kindness and gentleness with one another and with people we encounter would permeate this body. And we would be found reflecting the character and the demeanor of Jesus as much as the truth of Jesus. Now, Two years of crazy town has probably made us all a little cranky, hasn't it? Do you find yourself just patience just a little bit short sometimes? We feel pressed and pressured and a little persecuted. And sometimes in speaking the truth, we get a little aggressive and actually a little unkind. Every once in a while, somebody will send me a clip of another pastor preaching somewhere. You got to see this. It's a little weird. Just to be honest. It's a little weird. It's, it's like, do you text your barber pictures of somebody else's haircut? Like, how do you, why does this work? But I always wonder, like, why did you send me this? I don't understand. Some of you are going, oh, I sent him one. No, it's just a funny thing to me. Because oftentimes, it's somebody who has a very valid point, but they're preaching it in a crazy aggressive way. Almost an offensive, and I'm like, is that, I don't think I want to be that guy. I don't think that's who I want to be. The, the debate in the political world of trying to own the other side and trying to prove your point and shove truth down the throat of somebody who disagrees with you so that you can say, aha, has permeated the church. And I don't think it's how Jesus communicated. We do not need to be harsh or unkind to share the gospel or to stand up for righteousness. Truth and kindness are not adversaries. They're best friends. We don't sacrifice the truth when we're kind, and we don't sacrifice kindness when we share the truth. Jesus was called a lot of things, but nobody ever thought of him as being weak. Nobody ever thought of him as being soft on sin. He chose and did hard things his entire life, from choosing to be a carpenter to die on a cross. It was like difficulty after difficulty, but even though he found a way to aggressively engage with unrighteousness, he remained tender towards people, and they wrote and spoke of his kindness. I'm always struck about the story in John 4, where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. And it's not the woman who would normally seek out a rabbi, okay? She comes to the well during the day because she's thinking, well, there won't be anybody there. It's not, it, it'll be easier to get in, get out. Don't really want to see anybody it's like, you know, you go to a grocery store with curlers in your hair. Who do you see? The pastor. You know, it's, it's one of those things. So she goes and she meets the rabbi there at the water. And she's like, oh, I didn't really didn't think I was going to see the rabbi. And here we go. And he, in turn, tells her everything she's doing wrong. Like, he just lays out her sin for her. Asks her some questions. Knows, knows the truth. Reveals the truth. But he did it with such kindness that she goes to get her friends. When was the last time you told somebody everything they were doing wrong and you did it with such gentleness? They were like, i got to get my buddies. And they go bring their friends to hear that. John 4, 29, she says, come 
and see the man that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Yeah, didn't he tell you everything you're doing wrong? Yeah, but you should. The way he did it. Like he did it with such gentleness. When Jesus spoke to people about their sin, kindness and truth were not adversaries. I want the bridge to reflect Jesus both in the, in the facet of truth and in the facet of kindness and gentleness. Everybody wants to share the love of God, but what does it mean for us to show the love of God? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 tells us love is patient and kind. Did you know that's actually not an internal document? <laughs> that's, like, that's meant for us to share. It's not like a user's manual for how we relate to people in the church. It's how we relate to everybody. It's patient and kind. Luke 6.35, he's speaking, he says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You'll be called the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. There are people that are easier to be kind to than others. The ungrateful and the evil, kind of at the bottom of the list. He says, I am kind to them, and in being kind to them... His message was received at a level it would have never been received if it were just bare facts. Say, Randy, why all the emphasis on kindness? You like going for the kindness merit badge? Do you hate controversies? No, actually, I don't hate controversy. I really like clarity. I don't hate controversy. Those of you who have been with us for a while, you know, I'll, I'll talk about things that maybe you wouldn't think people would talk about. I'm not afraid of that. But I want to cultivate this culture of kindness because people matter to God and we want to introduce them to the kindness of Jesus along with the truth of Jesus. He was kind and his kindness drew them to him. One of the most interesting characters in American history is uh, Benjamin Franklin. Just always the odd man out of history. He just really is. And uh, not only brilliant, not only a statesman, but a avowed unbeliever and a dear friend of George Whitfield. George Whitfield, the revivalist that would speak to 30,000 people, one of his biggest fans was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin would go and hear him preach. He one time said, George Whitfield's sermons are like music. He said he just speaks with such articulation. Loved George Whitfield. Actually helped Whitfield build an orphanage in Georgia raised money for an interdenominational chapel near him so that Whitfield could preach there. Now, it's not written if Whitfield's friendship had any effect on Franklin, whether he ever gave his heart to the Lord. It's, it's doubted, but, but you don't know what happens in the heart of a man. But he did write this in Poor Richard's Almanac, and you've got to wonder if he wasn't thinking about Whitfield. He said, tart words make no friends. Spoonful of honey will catch more flies than a gallon of vinegar. Some of you thought that was in Proverbs. That, that's Benjamin Franklin. Now, it is a biblical idea. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health and body. And Romans describes it this way in Romans 2, 4. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Friends, I want people on the outside to be looking inside and go, I don't know what they're doing there, but those people are kind. There's something they have. There's a gentleness and a graciousness that they have that when they speak to me about important things, I tend to listen. Not because I think they're right. I don't know if they're right or not, but they're kind. 
Let them find you kind, and they'll learn you're right. You ever heard the word vanguard? You're familiar with the word vanguard? The vanguard is the very forefront of a military operation. Everybody thinks of the Marines that landed on Omaha Beach uh, and on D-Day as the vanguard of the invasion of Europe. They weren't. The vanguard was the 101st Airborne that dropped behind enemy lines and attacked the guns from the back so that the Marines could land. Still a difficult thing. If you're a Marine, don't fight me later. I'm just saying it was the 101st Airborne that were the vanguard of the invasion of Europe in World War II. The kindness of God expressed through the people of God is the vanguard of evangelism. It is the beginning of sharing Christ with people. It draws people into discussions that arguments will never get them into. And I want the bridge to be the 101st airborne of that story. When your neighbor hears about the death and resurrection of Jesus and the offer of new life, let it be from the lips of someone who has spoken graciously to them when their dog got out or when they tipped over your trash cans. Let your speech be seasoned with grace. It's my prayer that five years from now, people who barely know what the bridge is or where it is will say, I don't know what it is about those people, but they are kind because people who sense that will hear other things from us as well. That's what I want them to say. They're kind. Another thing I want them to say about us is this. When I am near those people, I feel God. I feel God. When I first wrote that, I wrote, I I sensed the presence of the Lord, and I realized that unsaved people don't talk that way. That's like, you know, that's a Christian. I just want them to say, I don't know what's going on there, but I feel God when they're near. I was listening to the radio the other day, and I heard an advertisement for dog food. And the language caught me so off guard that I actually had to remember the URL and go look. Like, when have you ever looked up a product that you heard? The, but I looked up the product. So this is what this dog food says about itself. Formulated by board-certified veterinary nutritionists to be complete and balanced. Made with human-grade ingredients that are gently steamed to help ret- retain their maximum nutritional value. Choose from a variety of fresh, personalized portion recipes, including chicken, beef, turkey, and more. I had to go look this up online. And the pictures, you should see this food. Well, let's say, I would eat this. Like, it's, it's beautiful food. It looks like gourmet stuff. And the best part is the name of the company. This is not a paid advertisement, by the way. The, 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 the name of the company is The Farmer's Dog. I grew up on a farm. Let me tell you something. That is not what the farmer's dog is eating, okay? We always had a couple of dogs on the farm. My dad would go to the grain, the grain store and he'd buy a 50-pound bag of this dog food that looked like burnt over charcoal, but it was red. You dumped it like dust would rise. That's what the farmer's dog is eating. If the farmer's dog sees this stuff, he is never going back to the red stuff that comes out. Never. Why? We're no different. We tend to be comfortable and even satisfied with what we have if we don't know that something better is there, right? Exposure to something better increases desire. Can you imagine? I'm trying to think about our our two little dogs. If I gave them the dry, junky stuff in one bowl and this gourmet steamed, who steams dog food? Like, do you have to, you know, this, I, I cannot see my dogs going, oh, what to do, what to do. No, they're going right for the good stuff. 
Because once you know the good stuff's there, you're not eating this other trash. If we can expose people to the presence of God, it will change their desire. It will give them a hunger and a craving for something that they do not crave right now because they don't even know it's there. Some of you are like, yeah, my neighbor has no interest in the Lord. They just live in their life. People in the church go, are they miserable? No, no, they don't seem to be. They seem to be pretty happy. Why? Because all they know is that 50-pound bag of junk that my dad used to feed the dog. That's all you know, you eat it. I pray that five years down the road, people who know nothing about us as an organization will speak with their own words. When I am near those people, I feel God. I sense something that I don't know. I can't have a lot of language for it, but there's, they're carrying, there's something. It's not just that we're kind, although that's the beginning. It's not just that we're right about the issues because we want to be that, but they feel the presence of the Lord when they're around us and they can no longer deny Him. Most of them aren't cognitively denying him now. Your unbelieving friends and family do not wake up and reject Jesus. They don't even think about Jesus. They're not even thinking about steaming vegetables in a bowl. They're not thinking about the fact that there's something better. But it is exposure to his presence that changes things. Carrying the presence of God wherever you go causes real havoc for the plan of the enemy. The God of this world, small g, meaning the enemy knows that if people sense an encounter with the true God, they will not stop until they find him. So the best thing that he could do is hide God. The best thing he could do is insulate people from his presence because once they get near him, they're going to want him. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, because if they see him, they're going to want him. There is a concerted, systematic effort by the prince of darkness to inhibit people from encountering Jesus and therefore never understanding what they're missing. If they don't know what they're missing, no wonder they're satisfied with what they've got. I want to blow up the plan of the enemy who is denying people the pleasure of knowing God by carrying the presence with us in such a way that they go, when I'm with those people, I sense God. If we want them to feel God in our presence, we've got to get in his presence. That's how it happens. We can't bring them into what we don't carry on our own. And if we are mostly carrying the burdens of the world and not carrying the presence of the Father, we are serving them the same dry, chunky stuff that they're finding on their own. Believers who've been with Jesus bring something different to the table. How do we reflect his presence? What does that look like? We intentionally disengage from the cravings of this world. And to the degree that we disengage from those, we engage with the heart of God and we find ourselves satisfied with something else and suddenly his presence is with us. Some of us are struggling to carry his presence because our hands are so full with so many other things. We've got pastimes, and we've got family, and we've got a job, and we've got concerns, and, we've got, and some of them you have to carry the rest of your life. You don't have to carry all of them. And he's saying, no, you need to put some things down and embrace me in an intentional way so that when you're walking among those who don't know any better, you have something with you to offer them. 
The life of being a Jesus follower results in decisions that are made and values that are held that reflect the presence of God. And the only explanation about why you are that way that you are is that you know someone that they don't know. Five years from now, if people are not asking about the bridge, why are they different? It's because there's nothing different about us. If they're not sensing the presence of the Lord with us, it's because maybe we were too dedicated to so many other things, we didn't have room to carry that as well. 1 Peter 2.9, he describes how he sets us apart strongly. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. King James uses this great phrase, you are a peculiar people. He's like, you're, you're, you're different. It's just, you're different. It's not weirdness, but it is a set-apartness. And if people don't sense something different about us, if we don't pursue something different than they're pursuing, we're only going to reflect what they have, and no wonder they don't want it. They look in our bowl, and it's the same dry stuff as in theirs. Five years from now, I want people, when they think of the bridge, I want them to say they are kind people. I want them to say, when I am near them, I feel God. And, and this may be a little odd, I also want them to say, you know there's a congregation too. Like, what? Oh yeah, there's, there's also a congregation. What is a bridge for? Is to get people across a river or a valley, something that they can't traverse on their own. We want to be a bridge that brings people together and more importantly, brings people to God. And that can have a lot of different expressions, but the mere existence of a bridge changes things. Suddenly people can get where they could not get before. And I want people to encounter that access to God and that opportunity to meet Him before they even realize there's a congregation because what we are about is bigger than Sunday morning. It just is. This, where you are, those of you that are joining us online, this is a congregation. The congregation is the expression of something that is much larger called the kingdom. There are things that we will be involved in kingdom promoting that might not appear to have a direct correlation to our congregation. Why? Because we're a part of that bigger movement. And I would love for people to go, oh, yeah, I, the, the bridge, we know what that is. They, they do this, they do this, they do this, and oh, there's a congregation. Because if the congregation becomes the primary thing, the kingdom doesn't expand. Things expand. Where do, some of you, you uh, parents made the mistake of buying your kids one of those balloons with the string. Boing, 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 boing. That's a rookie mistake. Don't buy those. Uh, Sorry, little parenting advice here. Anyway, but you know, when you, when you inflate those things, you know, and you nearly send yourself into, you know, like oxygen depravity, you blow those things up, where do they expand? On the, on the edges, okay? Doesn't get bigger in the middle, more air pressure, but the expansion is on the edges. The, the kingdom always expands on the edges. It's always people, that they're kind of in, they're kind of out, and all of a sudden they're in. And, and those people don't always find their way into a Sunday morning situation. The kingdom expands more outside the congregations than it does on the inside. It's built, it's strengthened, it's matured in a congregation. The expansion's on the outside. And the movement that we're part of, it's not just our way of doing things. It's not that, oh, the bridge is now a movement. No, no, the bridge is a part of the movement, which is a kingdom movement. You know, we, uh, we church planners kind of joke Amongst us, like, is it a real church if it doesn't have merchandise? 
You know, if you can't buy a t-shirt, is it a real church? I got my, I didn't bring it. I have my first piece of bridge merch for Christmas. Okay, it's a hat that says the bridge that my kids bought at Goodwill. I don't know what it meant to the person who got it to begin with. So we're going to get all the church merch from Goodwill. Um, sorry. But the, we're not the movement, okay? We're, we're some people online and a group of friends and a dance studio in Olathe where it's three degrees. Like, this is not the end all. The movement is way bigger. And it's not even about us. I want people to encounter bridge people and bridge values and, and bridge efforts and then go, oh, did you know there's a Sunday morning meeting? Because the Sunday morning meeting is not the leading edge of this thing at all. In fact, if there's a leading edge, it's not a Sunday morning meeting, it's a prayer room for kingdom focus where the Lord hooks our heart and puts things in us that we just don't have time to develop here and... and it's just like there are things that we gain from being in his presence for an extended period of time that we just don't, can't do this way. We spoke two weeks ago about being a people of prayer and where the church is going and whether it is by choice or necessity, we will learn to pray. That's, that's where it's going. I, I want to learn at my own pace, which means I got to hurry, but we will all learn someday. And I would rather learn when it's easier than when it's harder. But I have never known a congregation that didn't want to be a praying church. Like, I've, I've never asked a pastor, so are you a praying church? Yeah, so much. Really? <laughs> no, nobody says that. Every, are you pray? Oh, I'm praying church. Yeah. Everybody wants to be a praying church. But I've never seen a congregation become a praying church when the Sunday morning gathering was the focal point of what they did. It's always focused somewhere else, in outreach and in a prayer room. If you remember our uh, message months ago about David bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. And if you remember this, they, they tried to bring it in on a cart. Did not go well. All right? There was a body count. It's not good when you try to have a worship service and there's a body count at the end. So he goes back and he, he thinks about it. He leaves it at somebody's home. And, and then he, he stirs himself up and he goes, we're going to go back and get it, but we're going to go back and we're going to get it right. We're going to go back and we are going to gain the presence of God himself in the form of the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to bring it home, but we're going to do it his way, not ours. That means we carry it ourselves. We carry the presence. We're, going to, we're not going to put, don't bring the cart. Just that yeah, cart didn't go well. Put it on our shoulders, carry it. And every six steps we're going to sacrifice. Do you know how far this thing is? Yeah. We're going to bring a lot of animals to sacrifice. Because every six steps, we're gonna, you'd sacrifice like nine animals between here and the donuts. But he said, we're going to do it slow, but we're going to do it intentionally. We're going to lay everything down because I have made a vow. He said, I said in Psalm 27, 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord the rest of the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. He's like, I'm going to do this. I got one shot at this and I'm going to do it right. I don't care how long it takes me. I am going to get in the presence and I'm going to stay there even if it takes me a long time because there are things in there that I can never glean out there. 
we can only become carriers of his presence if we have time, discipline, and grace. He provides the grace, the time and the discipline we bring to the table. Now, he provides a grace for it, but it's really up to us to do that. And like David, I want to spend time gazing on the beauty of the Lord, enter into extended times of worship and prayer that are not affected by, okay, we've got to leave the building, or we've got to rotate, or the kids are tired. No, I just want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord because I will never grow weary of looking at him. A thousand years later, we're going to be going, I, I didn't see that part. I didn't say, wow, look at that. And to inquire of his temple. If we want a clue of what is coming, we've got to inquire of the Lord in a, in a concentrated way. Ultimately, David's expression of that, the way he did that, this, is, this will drive the five-year plan, folks, completely bonkers. He gathers worshipers and musicians and people to minister to the Lord says, I will pay you to do this. I will actually pay musicians to play and to host the presence of God. Because when you host the presence of the Lord, we actually win battles out there. And over time, there were times when the, the Davidic worship that he set up would break down. When it would break down and it wouldn't work, they would start getting their head handed to them on the outside. Seven times in the Old Testament, key leaders returned to Davidic worship and said, no, we go get the, get the ox, get the six feet, every we can worship. You got to do it exactly the way David did it. Why? It drew the presence of the Lord. It gained us access to him. I want the bridge to offer the king of the universe a sacrifice of time, ultimately morning, noon, and night. I, I want a place that we can call our own that no matter what your schedule is, at some point you can sneak in there and you can spend time. The others can say, you know what? No, I'm dedicated to this. I'm going to be here, you know, three mornings a week, five mornings a week, whatever. Uh, I see three. Not, not, not starting instantly with, with all of that. Never going 24-7. IHOP KC is running 24-7. We don't need to replicate what they're doing. Praise the Lord that they've done it for 20 years. I'm so happy they have. It's, it's blessed us. We don't need to replicate that, but we do need to inquire from the Lord and we need to seek his face. And the rhythm of doing it and of being a people who do it will mean that we are a people who others will look at and say, I don't know, but when I'm with them, I sense God. Like they've got something there. Out of that presence of prayer, we will see our own hearts softened. We will see our city affected. And ultimately, we'll see our congregation blessed. It all comes around. But it starts with us, and it's bigger than a Sunday morning gathering. Now, how do we get there? You know? This, is, this would be the great time for me to roll out the PowerPoint deck and the, you know, the five-year plan and all that. I don't have that. I don't have that. But I am so hungry for what he's going to do. And I have such great faith in him, in his ability to bring people around us who can help with that. And for him to provide finances and for him to provide place that I'm not going to let go. I don't want to I don't want to let go a hold of what the Lord has put in our hearts just because I don't see how it's going to materialize. Okay? I want to hang tight onto it and believe for it. I want to ask if Michael would come back up. God's plan for the bridge 
run off the page that we can see. Runs off the page. And the most useful thing we could do is by intention, get in his presence and say, will you speak to us? Will you show us, Lord? Just like you did the, the church of the New Testament, just step by step. I don't need five years, God. Will you give me two weeks? Will you, will you tell me what to do tomorrow? Will you speak to me just a little bit? And I'll obey. And in that, I believe there's another thing coming. Stand with me, if you would. I want to take just a little bit of time here and do that. We, we're, we're good for time. We're not pressed for time. But I want to just ask Michael just to take us into the presence of the Lord. Father, we come and we don't know what's next. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know how to get there, but we know what you're speaking to us. So I ask, would you make us the kindest friends of God that people can find? Will you make us people who carry your presence with us? Will you make us a body that hosts the presence of the Lord in a way that attracts you? We don't care if we get anything else, Lord. We need you. Will you come?